0: all these members signed up. We got a ton of press attention and we had, I remember one day alone, we had four and a half thousand people signed up early stages. And I remember the very first angel pitch I gave, the feedback was, oh, maybe you and another thousand people will sign up to this. This will never scale from, from some of the investors. So hence, clearly we have gone beyond that by now.
1: Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media, I'm your host, Dan Murray surter and we're here to learn from great founders. I'm talking today to Ricky Rosenland, the founder and CEO of Borrow My Doggy, a platform where dog owners can find people who want to look after their dogs. It does what it says on the tin. And in case you're wondering, Ricky doesn't sign off her email with best wishes, she signs off with best woofs. Lols. Borrow My Doggy is one of those brands that people just remember. So, how has Ricky been able to build a meaningful and fun business like this? Well, it started with an idyllic Danish background and parents who believed in her. In fact, I think I'll need to pay attention to what I say about my kids behind their backs.
0: Well, I've grown out, up just outside Copenhagen, about 20 minutes drive. My parents are entrepreneurs. I've definitely seen the ups and downs from, from having parents entrepreneurs since I was a kid. So the reason we could see if it had been a good year was the Christmas gifts got a little bit bigger. And obviously sometimes when it wasn't going so well, then obviously we went on a lot of camping trips. <laughs> yeah, and I have an older sister. I'm very close with my, with my parents and my, my sister and just very good Danish childhood
1: like very good Danish childhood like i, I can't picture that right because i'm i'm british and i'm sure it's very different to mine Is a you know like what do you guys do like making log fires in the winter and like canoeing in the summer
0: so i am from a little bit more countryside so there's lots of lakes and forests around where i've grown up
1: i love that i said logs and canoes and you're like no no more countryside so that was apparently the city <laughs>
0: Yes. And um biking everywhere, you know, I definitely was something when we were always forced to. I think spending money on a bus would be a waste of money. So I have spent more time on a bicycle as a kid than I would re- like to remember, whether it's been a snowstorm, etc. And then my, my grandparents, they come from a farm in the north of the country, so I spent a lot of time on the farm as a child. And my other parents come from an, another city in Denmark, so... Yeah, it's a very good Danish upbringing as my dad is an entrepreneur still and he would bring us along on business trips too. So I have always seen kind of work being very linked into private life. So growing up, my parents had their company in the basement. So very often even, you know, the kind of his first employee, I kind of almost more saw him like like my uncle. He would always come up for dinners at, at our house upstairs and take care of me sometimes. And likewise, kind of suppliers, business partners, et cetera. So I, you know, I've always been, you know, seeing work and private life is very much the same. And what else can I say? My parents are very active in international organizations like politics, Rotary, et cetera, really being trying to make a, a positive impact.
1: And how much influence do you think your parents had on your upbringing? You're obviously an entrepreneur. Your dad's an entrepreneur. I'm assuming that is a big, obvious line of influence.
0: Very much so. Um, I've always wanted to build a company since as long as I remember. I really like the fact that work and private is very interlinked, that you do something you're very passionate about, and it gets you up in the morning. And to this day, my dad, he's working pretty much seven days a week, but his work is also his passion. So um, so I think that has definitely had a very, very big influence on me.
1: Great. And I read somewhere that you had um, this experience when you were younger right like overhearing your dad talking about you do you want to share that story
0: yeah there was actually twice when I was a kid where my my parents were sitting talking with some friends in their the living room and my dad was saying that he thought I could put everything I put my mind to and I think given I respect him so much, hearing that from him, not him trying to say it to me, to encourage me, but actually because he really, he was also sharing it with other people, really is something that has stuck with me. So when I go through difficult um, periods, knowing how high regards my parents have in my ability to overcome things, <laughs> and also, you know, when I jump into something very, very difficult, the fact that I just have their support and a backup always it means the world to me.
1: That's very nice. Um, I think it's really interesting for me because I, I listen to these, I, I, I ask these questions now and listen to the answers a bit more intently because as a new parent, I think it's always fascinating to hear other adults talk about the, influent, like the influential words or the impact that comments or things said in passing actually genuinely have on a lifetime. It's a great reminder, right? Like how powerful words are in front of kids, both positive and negative. Unfortunately, you know, you've been influenced by the very positive ones, but I guess, you know, it's a really good reminder that just even, even negative ones could possibly have that kind of lifetime of influence on, on the little ones as well. But a last obvious question about your childhood, and then we can move on from there. Did you have pets?
0: I didn't, surprisingly enough.
1: Interesting. But you always wanted to borrow a, a wolf and a bear and the other I l- Danish locals.
0: love animals. And when I was a kid... Yes, when I was a kid, spending time at my grandparents' farm was the highlight of the summer. They had a black labrador that I absolutely loved to pieces, they also had cats. But the cats, unfortunately, were slightly less fond of me and my energy to want to hug them all. So the cats very often disappeared when I came to the farm and the dog liked hanging out with me. So I spent a lot of time there in the summers when I was a kid. And then on top of that, I had a very um, close friend who lived close to my house and he also had a Labrador. So I obviously spent a lot of time with my friend and also hanging out with his Labrador.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about your early career then. Um... Bit of context: uh, We obviously got to know each other actually going on a, a trip abroad many years ago. I think I ended up having a really long conversation with you. I distinctly seem to remember it at an airport randomly, and I think we were waiting for a plane that was really delayed, and we got like lost in like a very long conversation. It must have been four or five years ago, and I remember you telling me this hilarious story about Panama. And I don't want to force you to tell your early career stories how I think you should, but um, I do always remember it sticking with me. So in that light, tell us a little bit about your early career, Panama.
0: (laughs) So, you know, going back to the stories of, you know, my parents having encouraged me to believe that I can do everything, I kind of have taken on a few various challenges throughout. So um, one was I backpacked through Central and South America. I absolutely loved Panama. Don't know if you've ever been there, but Panama City is at the Pacific Ocean. Then you drive for a couple of hours, then you're at the Pacific Ocean, and then you take boat for 10 minutes, and then you are on a Caribbean island. So for me, being Danish, loving sunshine, that was a pretty nice place. So at the end of the trip, Instead of going back to Europe or France where I used to live, I bought a one-way ticket to Panama and then I started to look for a job. I asked around a lot to see if anyone could help me. I was obviously in an unfortunate situation where I didn't have any working papers and while I did speak Spanish, it was not up to the level of a you know native speaker. Um, but I ended up um, getting a job there and I worked for a Panamanian corporation where I set up a company for them. It was um, Renault and they already had Nissan and BMW, etc. And yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. It was probably one of the most challenging jobs I've had. It's probably, probably also one of the lowest paying jobs I've ever had. And it's probably also the, one of the jobs I've loved the most. So setting up the kind of Renault doing everything from design to launch events. I also managed sales. It was just such a great experience. And given in Panama, you know it's hard to get stuff done, especially sometimes as a as a female um Danish woman, I definitely had my my challenges.
1: and just just so we um so we understand like the full idea. So I remember you telling me a little bit about rotary, and you you know you even mentioned it uh, just earlier on. Talking about your parents, what is Rotary for people that don't know? Like, give us some context what this word that springs up is.
0: Yeah, Rotary is an international organization that connects um, generally business people around the world. So it's both connection of business people and then they also do a lot of charity work. It's probably the organization that sends the most exchange students, or it is the organization that sends the most exchange students in the world, but they also started the Polio Plus program that has made the world almost polio free. And so they do a lot of different work, but it's very much a business network where business leaders connect with people from different industries and and help each other out. My dad was a member and I became a member of the youth club growing up and I did a lot of work with them. So when I went to Panama, I looked up in the Rotary Club guide to figure out who the key people were in rotary and I ended up um, meeting with the guy who runs international and we hit it off so well when I meet, met with him I didn't meet with him for a job and then at the end of our conversation he said Rika why don't you just come and, and work for me so which I did so um yeah and I said it was it was a great 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 experience and I was so happy with with what I did in Panama and and what we accomplished so it was good
1: and um- Rotary, is that something that you've stayed in contact with? Like, Has it had any other impact on your life going forward?
0: It has had a lot of impacts. So I was a member of a Rotary club in London previously, but I also went to the World Conference when it was in the UK one year, given my my parents came over for it. And I heard a guy called Tom Henderson speak. So Tom Henderson set up an organisation called Shelterbox to deliver aid after earthquakes and tsunamis, etc., and Tom, I just remember in this big auditorium, Tom he he put all these pictures on the screen and said, "Think if you lose absolutely everything." And I just remember sitting there thinking, I was like, "But I can't even imagine losing everything because even if I lost my house and all my belongings, etc., I have you know family that can help me. I have friends who can help me. The government will help me get a roof over my head. So I, I really can't imagine." And so I was really, really touched by Tom Henderson's presentation. And I went down and spoke with him afterwards. And I said, Tom, what can I do to help? Because I I really admire what you do. And he said to me that, you know, obviously I could help with fundraising. But he said, if you really want to do something, you can also deliver aid after earthquakes and tsunamis, et cetera. And he said, it's quite a tough selection process because obviously they mentally and physically test you to the extreme but I ended up signing up for it I went through all the selection courses I got picked and then I ended up delivering aid after some earthquakes and tsunamis etc and that really really had a big impact on me
1: that's amazing thank you for sharing So we can move on to the topic du jour. What were you doing before Borrow My Doggy?
0: Well, after I did my MBA, I worked in financial services in business development and marketing. So mainly at American Express, so a very, very different world from the startup world.
1: Okay, so why Borrow My Doggy? What led you to this insight?
0: I borrowed a very cute brown leopard doll called Aston, and we spent the entire day together and I just remember thinking, why are people spending so much money on dog walkers or kennels or leaving their dog home alone when I would love to take care of a dog for free? And I thought there should be a website connecting people like me with local dog owners because everyone would benefit. Boris would get happy dog time, owners would get help with taking care of their dogs, and dogs would get more love and attention. So that inspired me. And then um, one of my friends who invests in startup companies, he lived very close to me. So I actually that day I, I asked him, I was like, hey, do you want to come out and go for a walk? You know, I had this wonderful brown... Brown Labrador with me. And so he came out and I told him about the idea for Bore My Doggy and he said, that's a pretty good idea. You guys should go to the Lean Startup Machine and try to test the idea, which I did. I pitched the idea. There was around 60 people in the room and the concept of Bore My Doggy got the most votes from the other participants to be tested that weekend. So there was a lot of people testing different things. So we put up a landing page in, what's it, three, four hours pretending we had this website and we put some Wufu back in data capture forms. And then we put posters around Hampstead Heath and did some tweets about it. And then, in a the space of three days, we had 85 people signed up. And the most amazing thing was um, the first 85 people who signed up were from such different backgrounds. So you had like the old man in Cornwall who just had an operation and needing help with taking his dog for long walks because he couldn't. And then there were lots of students and young professionals missing their dogs home alone or missing having a dogs in their life and having moved away from their, from their parents' house. And then there were also a family with a little girl who was begging for a dog, but she was still scared of them. So the family didn't want to get a dog to maybe have to give it up because they wouldn't obviously be fair to the dog. So when I read that story, I just started crying and I thought, oh, my gosh, not another little girl without a dog. Because I have always wanted a dog growing up. I have literally begged my parents for a dog throughout my childhood. So borrow My Doggy, it's a little bit trying to fix all the other kids' lives out there (laughs) while the parents are saying no to having a dog. And then I went out for a drink with one of our fellow good friends and told her about Bore My Doggy. She tweeted about it. And literally, I think within 24 hours of her tweeting, then we were on a magazine called Emerald Street. So we had about a thousand people signed up. And then within 24 hours of that, we had the BBC Daily Mail and Independent contacting us. And so it all went incredibly fast. And given we didn't have a backend, I was running around and we were running around just manually matching people to try to get, um, yeah, matches up and running. So we'd go to somebody's house, take their address, try to understand why they had signed up for Borrow My Doggy. And that is obviously trying to figure out the why of the website and really, you know, try to figure out what problems we were solving for people. Um, So yeah, it it all went very fast and and very quickly after we started to just just build out the product, raised funding. And by now we have, you know, over 1 million members and 99% of postcodes in the country.
1: Amazing. Okay. And how did you like start this like funding wise?
0: The same way as I do everything else, I spoke with everyone and their mother to know if they know anyone who could help us raise funding. So one of the ways I raised funding was I went to a birthday party. And again, I spoke with lots of people and I was introduced to um, a guy who runs, you know, an investment angel club. And he said, hey, why don't you send me an email tomorrow and I can introduce you to our assistant who, who runs these investment clubs. And I wrote Her the next or him the next day and got introduced to the investment club, and from there we ended up getting some really great investors.
1: And validating the idea, how do you know if you're onto a good thing?
0: I think it's very much depending on the stage. So obviously, to begin with, we had all these members signed up. We got a ton of press attention, and we had. I remember one day alone, we had four and a half thousand people signed up early stages. And I remember the very first angel pitch I gave, the feedback was, oh, maybe you and another thousand people will sign up to this. This will never scale from from some of the investors. So hence, clearly we have gone beyond that by now. So from there, what we went early stages too, we went out and interviewed a lot of people. And it's not like we interviewed, say, hey, we're thinking about setting up this business. What we did was we went out and actually tried to understand what, what issues people have with dog care in the moment. And there is a massive issue with dog care in the moment. I mean, if you even ask people who've gotten a dog, I think 97% underestimate the cost of having a dog, which is somewhere between 22 and 33,000 pounds over their lifetime. You know, if you look at all the issues with dog care, I think it's 25% pre-pandemic were overweight because obviously they didn't get sufficient exercise or wrong nutrition, etc. but supposedly also 25% are depressed. You can mention that in a dog's saliva because they spent too much time home alone. So obviously we looked at all the issues that dog owners have, all the problems they have from a both financial perspective, but also time perspective with, with helping take care of their dog. And then, from there, you know, we could, we have obviously done a lot of um, campaigns to have tons of people sign up to our our platform and hence that has also helped us scale how big the market is going to be i mean when you do something new and innovative you can make assumptions and you can look at some of the existing solutions which are out there where people are spending over one billion pounds a year on dog care in the uk so there is a lot of need for help with taking care of the dog and we have a lot of people signing up wanting to take care of a dog many more so than than owners
1: It's an interesting thing, right? Because I guess your company is predicated on a similar to Olio actually, but just a really challenging narrative in terms of niche. So many people love dogs and so many people get it. People would have had pushback, I'm assuming, over whether people will pay the money or what the business model is and how, how the business can scale. And then the other side is, you know, marketplace. I mean, marketplace dynamic has to be one of the hardest business models out there, full stop. And I've never attempted to try it myself, but I've always been put off by how challenging it does look. I think it's such a thorough intellectual challenge. So, how did you go about trying to get the? You know, you talk about the supply and demand, right? You've got it the right way round now, which is you always want, I imagine, a, a demand-heavy uh, marketplace. But you know, how did you get to that point?
0: We have done a lot of data analytics along the way. It's a simple idea. And very often when we have people starting working with us, they say, wow, well, from an like analytics perspective, this is one of the most challenging business they have been working on. But I mean, I think it's like any business, right? You, you figure out, you know, what problem you're solving, you figure out, you know, f- how you you scale it. And, and for us, it's very much about, you know, supply and demand in the whole country. And then from there, making sure that we target in, you know, in the right areas and that we also, you know, keep on focusing on solving a problem there's so many things we could move into you know we could move into other you know animal types or you know it's lots of different things we can do and and what we really try to do is like we're trying to focus on solving a problem that we know is a big problem for lots of people and there are over 12 million dogs in the UK alone I mean there's 3 million new dogs during the pandemic and a lot of the new new Owners are younger people who now have to go back to the office. So there is big issues with lots of dog owners needing help with taking care of their dog. What our community all shares is the love of dogs. But there's another part to Borrow My Doggy, which is given that that is a membership-based model. So people who borrow dogs, they pay £13 per year. People who own dogs, they pay £45 per year. There's no transaction fees between the two parties. So the borrower takes care of the dog for the love of them, and the owner lends out their dog for, number one reason, they believe it's the best treatment for their dog to be taken care of by another dog lover. And then also, obviously, it, it really helps them out. But what we really see is a lot of people sign up too because they want to spend time with their neighbors. So we have we have seen the strongest communities coming out of this. Even during the pandemic, people delivered food for each other, medication for each other. I mean, a very good example of is one of our team members. When she first got COVID and, and she was her and her partner were, were quite unwell, the owner, the dog owner they borrowed the dog from delivered food for them. And then later on, when, when the owner got COVID and, and got long COVID, then from there, the dog moved over to their house. So, so it's just really strong communities that's been built across the country. So there is the, the shared love of dog, but then there's also that I am getting to know people around my neighborhood. So some people even reach out to more people that, or maybe it's one of the first things they do when they move into a new neighborhood is signing up to Bore My Doggy, because it's a very good way to meet like-minded people. What
1: are your like aspirations then? What's the vision like? Or I guess let's put it a different way: Where is the business today? Like, can you talk about you know how many people, what revenue you're targeting, like anything like that? And like, what is the vision for where you're looking to get to?
0: Well, as mentioned previously, we already have over one million members and ninety-nine percent of postcodes, so it is. Just keep on growing the platform, making more matches, making the the website even better to use. So we, you know, we're just constantly building out new functionalities based on feedback that we get from, from our community, optimizing the funnel. We just have so much potential. So we are in the UK and Ireland right now. And um, so that's what we're focusing on. So the way it works is people sign up, create a profile. They write a bit about themselves or their dog, and then they search for people on the platform. And then they meet and greet, just like you do with a dog sitter, babysitter. So it's about getting to know people locally. And then they pay annual membership fees. So people who borrow dogs pay £13 per year, and people who own dogs pay £45 per year. And it includes verification, and everyone have access to a 24-7 vet line too. And then we obviously cover all of our members by insurance too.
1: I'm guessing a business like this uh, takes quite a lot of self-belief, a lot of resilience, a lot of not even self-belief, team belief. I'm assuming a lot of rejection. Talk to me a little bit about your fundraising journey then. How much have you raised to date?
0: So we have just raised essentially like um, seed rounds. I remember when I first thought about starting up a company, um, my friend who's an investor in in startup companies, he told me that 60 to 70% of startup companies go bust in the first three to four years. And I think it's 90% within the first 10 years. So all of us, and you're very much an example of that too, and have to have the resilience for building stuff and really believe in it. Because if you look at the statistics, then, you know, none of us have a that good of a percentage of making it chance. So it is really believed because you believe that your idea has a good chance and you just have to keep on going at it and just spend your time the wisest you possibly can. Fundraising, it's easy to end up spending your entire time on fundraising, speaking with investors, almost sometimes at the expense of the product. So I've definitely tried to just hold off and just get the company to as healthy of position as I could by just trying to build out the model and actually get membership fees versus constantly running around trying to get other people to give us funding. There is obviously also, you know, the challenges and we have definitely had ours. I remember... One of the earliest times or first times I tried to raise funding, I was in a panel with somebody else at Google, another female founder. And I think she said that she had a 97% rejection rate. I mean, having spoken with way over 100 people, her husband was a very successful entrepreneur. And I was like, wow, hands up for you. The fact that you even, you know, still, you know, track all your statistics, because <laughs> that's a little bit heartbreaking sometimes. That said, for anyone who's listening to this, I recently, I recently heard a TED talk. And it was called The Real Reason Why Female um, Founders Get Less Funding. And it was by a woman called Dana Kanzi, K-A-N-Z-E. And what she said was very often female founders and male founders, we get asked different questions. So obviously, you know, she did a massive study on this with public available um, and pitches. And so she analyzed all the pitches. And women, we tend to get more questions in terms of you know, are you sure that, you know, you can even retain your customers and versus men, they generally tend to go with more questions on how big do you think this this can become? So I think for her, the good news in this TED video was what we as women have to learn is turning the questions of how could we retain the customers into also include how big can we think this can become? So and for me, that was definitely a very big big learning. And what the video also said is both men and women who are on the investment side ask different questions from men and women. So I think for all of us to realize is there are biases out there, but then also for us female and founder realizing what we can do with the biases. And I have definitely had a lot of the questions of the, how do you think you can retain your customers versus how big do you think this can become? So I, I have definitely had a hard time sometimes, and I have also learned a lot. So I think, you know, then rest the conversations I've had more recently, and just to go out back out and hearing, you know, what people feel about our business, etc., has been very, very different and much more positive.
1: So, talk to me about like the toughest moment that you've experienced in running the business so far.
0: So, I don't think there is one toughest, I think there's been a lot of really tough moments, and each one is different. Somebody once said to me, It's never as good as it seems, and it's never as bad as it seems. And when I was very early in in the journey, everything that was good seems extraordinary good and everything that was bad seemed like it was just the end of the world. And I think over time having learned that just to kind of manage my feelings a little bit has helped out a bit so I think to begin with you know the best moment was when the first dog owner signed up because that was a validation and when we got the first you know BBC you know or independent article there was just so many highlights and likewise the low lights was you know the first time there was an issue with a customer the first time there was an issue with an employee or the first time you know things were not necessarily easy with with one of our investors and each one of them has seemed really, really difficult at the time. And I think now when we go through challenges, they're not as bad anymore. I said, because A, a lot of them I've been through. And then B, I realized this is just another bump. Sometimes it's a very big bump in the road. I think for me, the times where we did not have a lot of cash in the bank, given that you're obviously responsible for you know, your community building the best service possible and the team and your investors money. These are three sets of very big responsibilities. And I think when there is stuff where there's anything that has jeopardized the company early days, that was definitely difficult. And even as an entrepreneur, you obviously go through phases where you don't pay yourself any money, where You know, your own cash situation is also very, very low. Don't know how close you've been. (laughs) So I moved into my friend's house. (laughs) That was also difficult from a personal perspective, but I said, I can deal with stuff from a personal perspective, but I obviously, you want to make sure that our community is taken care of, our team is taken care of. And then, you know, we also need to do returns on our investors' money. So when it's been close to not, you know, taking on the world at early stages, I think that was the hardest.
1: And how do you think that choosing a life of entrepreneurship and then particularly the path that you've taken has had an impact on like building a a personal life?
0: To begin with, very much so. And in a negative way, I will say, um, I think to begin with, you have to learn not to take all the emotions at home. I said, realize the high is not as high and the low is not as high. So I needed to learn how to just kind of take time out for my family and just enjoy family time without necessarily checking email as much as I did to at the very, very beginning. Though, I think if you can get that right, like I feel my parents had where they then included us in everything. But, you know, then again, whenever times got tough, like for at home, I could just feel it in the size of the Christmas presents. So I think it's very important to learn how to just, you know, separate the two things. But like anything in life, we have to learn, right?
1: Yeah, agreed. Coming on towards the uh, the end of the interview then, like, what is the end goal for Borrow My Doggy? Like, you do investor presentations. You must have a thought in your mind about where this can go. What does an exit strategy look like at a company like yours?
0: I've always said that success for me is making sure that we, in no particular order, because I think each three groups are so important for us, but it is all about creating something our members absolutely love to use. And um, so it is creating the best product possible. Obviously, I want that to scale as much as I can, both here and you know abroad. We have a fantastic team. You know, I want them to have careers, loving their jobs, and obviously also get the best possible outcome they can. And then obviously, we have investors that I also want to give outcomes to. So I think once I succeed on fulfilling those three, then my goals will also have been fulfilled because it's about, you know, for me personally, it's about you know happiness for you know our community and the, everyone involved in born my doggy. But it's very much about scaling a, a company too financially. So those are my my goals.
1: So no theoretical exit strategy.
0: No theoretical exit exit strategy. Right, right now, no. It's really
1: interesting because you're you're basically providing a social good, right? So you know, how do you think that impacts you when you have to make commercial decisions like pricing, for example? Have you found that to be quite challenging in the past or have you sort of just let it, you know, run some tests and just looked at what works and what doesn't?
0: Yeah, and I don't think one thing excludes the other. I mean, for us, I spoke with somebody, was it two days ago, where he spent forty pounds a day on taking care of, or have his dog taken care of. I mean, our platform costs 45 pounds a year at the moment, right? So it's a really good value for somebody like him. So hence, you know, would he want to pay many times more, you know, for our platform? Absolutely, yes. So there there is a lot of potential for us to, you know, move around the prices. And I think we do provide a lot of help to our community. And they will be end up saving a lot of money versus, you know, where they're going to for other, other solutions. And then as set, said, there's that whole community aspect of it too. And likewise, even from a dog borrower's perspective, I mean, £13 pounds a year, you know, at the moment versus having a dog of your own, which, you know, I mentioned it's, it's over £22,000 a year. No, sorry, in total to have a dog. There is a lot of potential for us to, you know, move the prices around. But right now, first and foremost, our aim is just to build the biggest community we can.
1: And what is your favorite story um, that's happened in all your time at Borrow My Doggy?
0: There's so many stories I, I hear about a community I see in our teams where people host birthdays together or I said dogs are present at weddings or, or you know, people spending Christmas together. There's so many. We have a, what is a 95-year-old dog owner who has lots of bars up in the north of the country and he just he's the most active member and he give us weekly updates on what he does. But then I also love... The fact that i started it because i wanted kids to have ability to spend time with dogs and actually now my son has some happy dog time so it's set out to to like solve a lot of people's problems including for this one mine because my dog my son loves dogs
1: and you don't own a dog still
0: no i don't have a dog still
1: yeah just a popular a popular user of your own platform makes sense (laughs) Yeah. and can you talk us through like anything that's gone horribly wrong like in your journey right because i guess obviously one of the value propositions that you put in is the safety right is the number one thing that everyone that's ever going to let a stranger walk their dog or hang out with their dog is just going to freak out about is that something that you really understood and mitigated up in advance or is it something you learned from sadly having to learn it
0: no, that was my biggest concern, because I read the story about Airbnb and how their platform almost almost blew up whenever they started, when there had been some house parties and some big insurance cases. And so my key concern when we started was how to make sure our community was safe. So hence, from day one, I went to people's houses and verified people's addresses to make sure that people said who they were. And then after that, we started to implement, the, you know, the same provider as PayPal has for verifying um, members. And um, so where we check people's um, against electoral rolls, um, et cetera. And then another big thing of the whole um, getting to know each other is meeting and greeting, you know, get to know somebody well, just like you would do with a dog sitter, or babysitter for that matter. So really where, you know, people get to know each other welcome uh, locally. So I was very, very worried about something happening um, to start with, and hence, what we did was we did everything for interviewing our first members and, and get to know them well and before we we even launched everything on our platform so we pretty much had insurance day one we pretty much had the, the 24-7 bed line, line since day one too and we definitely did have verification of all of our members from day one and then all of our first members the first 100 ones I, I met them personally.
1: So you mitigated all of those mistakes so zero horror stories or still something in the locker?
0: I think any platform obviously will have had their issues along the way. The insurance has come in um handy once in a while. Thank goodness it's hardly been used. But, you know, one of the early issues we had was, you know, puppy peeing into a computer, you know, not or into a Mac, not a good thing. And then we've had, I'm sad to say, like the biggest issue, even though it's very seldom, is we've had some cats scratching dogs.
1: Not not without small, small errors on the way then, at least. So
0: No. No, but things can happen just like, as I was said, like if you, if you send your kid to the nursery, yes, it can fall down from this sling, you know, on the playground and stuff like that. So you just have to make sure that we do everything we possibly can from a, a safety perspective, but it's very much up to our members to also, you know, get to know each other on top of the verification, safety and insurance, et cetera, we have.
1: That makes sense. Thank you so much for your time, Ricky. Where can people go and sign up for Borrow My Doggy? This is I didn't think you'd have much trouble. <laughs> no,
0: and we're on social media too. So do share any cute dog photos with us too. We absolutely love it.
1: Amazing. Thanks
0: so much for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stoloman, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.